0: I'm going to be spending some time this evening talking about Donna. Uh, there's usually a talk at the end of retreat about Donna. So for those of you whose samadhi is so deep that you think you've missed the middle four days of this retreat, there's still some time left. I wanted to talk about Donna uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, there's often some confusion uh, about dana and its relationship to generosity. Also in the teachings of the Buddha, uh, dhana uh, stands as the first of the ten paramis, uh, the perfections, the qualities of the enlightened mind. Uh, and I found when I was doing some research for this uh, an old talk uh, a thousand years old or so from the Zen tradition by a Zen teacher named uh, huihai And he said that if you practice dana, uh, you realize all of the ten paramis. Now for someone who is severely numerically challenged, this came as quite a gift to me. Uh, Most of you know that uh, Theravadan Buddhism is uh, rather laden with uh, numbers. The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the 16 this, the 47 that. Uh, Sometimes it feels like a story problem uh, in mathematical terms, uh, which is much more complicated than it has to be. So when the Buddha uh, would often give teachings, he started with uh, what was called the gradual discourse. It was a kind of preparation for people who were unfamiliar with his teaching. Uh, The idea apparently was that uh, a mind that is somewhat uh, prepared is more ready to receive uh, teaching, and he so he would talk about uh, the joys of generosity, talk about virtuous living, talk about uh, the complications uh, that come with uh, conditioned phenomena, feeling states, etc. And he would talk about renunciation. And when he felt that uh, people had had some understanding of these, then he would begin uh, teaching the Four Noble Truths. So dana uh, actually stands at the very beginning of the teaching, not at the uh, end. Dana and generosity are uh, a little bit different. Dana, giving. Uh, rests uh, on generosity. It's actually the natural expression of generosity. We can think of Donna as the activity of generosity. That uh, when the mind is uh, somewhat clear of greed, hatred, and ignorance, and no longer clouded by these things, by these uh, mind states, that when the uh, closet, the little box that we spend most of our time living in called me and mine, uh, the doors are a bit opened, uh, the windows opened, maybe even the walls have fallen away a bit. Generosity is then the natural state of the mind when it's not perturbed by these other phenomena. And out of generosity, naturally comes giving. As we open up uh, to life flowing through us, life naturally wants to express itself. Generosity leads to giving. So to take on uh, the practice of dhana is one way to access this quality of generosity. One of the things that uh, got me somewhat interested in uh, talking on this subject was the relationship uh, between generosity and choiceless awareness. Is there some relationship between choiceless awareness and living generously? Does choiceless awareness uh, somehow manifest itself in uh, particular ways? What are the similarities and dissimilarities? As it turned out, I I became so interested in uh, Donna and generosity that the choiceless awareness piece sort of got pushed to the side. Uh, Basically, the, the sort of point touchstone of commonality between the two is that neither can be practiced. Choiceless awareness is the natural condition of the mind uh, when thought has settled in on itself. When the mind is deeply still, awareness is there, reflecting immediately and seamlessly what presents itself to it. When the mind and heart are uh, clear and open, uh, the classes, uh calmed and settled, the natural condition of the heart and mind is generosity. Just as we uh, practice mindfulness of breathing, as a way to, uh, and it's a practice in and of itself, it can also be a kind of uh, foundational practice, a way to uh, set us up in a certain way to uh, stumble into, to tumble into, uh, what we call uh, choiceless awareness. The practice of dana has the same relationship to generosity. We can undertake the practice of giving as a way of uh, putting ourselves in touch with uh, our naturally generous self. So what happens in generosity? What happens in giving? What is it that we give? Uh, What makes generosity so powerful is the uh, inner condition of letting go. We hear a lot about that on a retreat like this. Uh, One of the first things that uh, my first uh, teacher, uh, Maureen Stewart, uh, said to me was, Doug, there's really no problem here. All you have to do is let go of everything. And I sort of nodded yes more Thank you very much. Having not a clue as to what she was talking about. Um, But fundamentally it's true. What we practice in Donna is giving ourselves away. What makes generosity so powerful is the flowering, the inner opening, the letting go, that opens the heart in this way. So we can undertake a direct practice of giving. And when we do that, what happens? Well, at least a couple of things. First of all, it begins to put us in touch uh, with our basic goodness. Dāna is said to actualize uh, the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes. Uh, If we're giving, how can we not, in true giving, be in touch with loving-kindness? If we're giving, is not compassion there? Are we not reverberating Uh, to the other being that we're in relationship with? Is there not some quality of resonance? If not, what is it that motivates the giving? Equanimity is a factor of giving. Uh, Who in uh, giving doesn't experience some Uh, sense of sympathetic joy. The acknowledgement of a gift received touches us deeply. So when we practice giving, we come deeply in touch, at least potentially, with what is most basically good and true and open in ourselves. giving can happen without generosity. One of the things we begin to discover is that there are things that happen uh, under the guise of giving. Some of us, I know, have grown up in families where the uh, gift of the worm uh, always hides the hook. And... We keep grabbing that, and what's really on the other end is power and control. You know, somebody wanting us to do something in the way that they want us to do it. And you know, if I just give you some money or support you in your uh, uh, schooling, then won't you please just go to business school? Sometimes this can color our uh, experience in giving. I grew up in a family where this uh, false giving uh, was a bit of an art form. And uh, so you can imagine my bullshit meter when it comes to giving is pr- was pretty finely tuned. Not only did that result in a fair amount of fury but it also made it virtually impossible to discern true giving from giving disguised as something else. So when we take on, to the, on this practice of giving, we also uh, begin to actualize the function of discerning wisdom. And it starts with ourselves. So the act of giving, the practice of giving, whether it's uh, giving service, giving time, giving our attention, this practice begins to function as a kind of mirror for us. Because who do we meet in the act of giving? Well, of course, we have some, hopefully, encounter with the other person. Often what happens, however, is we have an encounter with ourself, with our idea about how that other person should respond. I mean, how many times have we had the experience of of stopping our car to let somebody go through and they don't wave, they don't do anything, they just gun it and go right on through. And, the, and the, often the sense of, you know, he couldn't even say thank you. And so what I meet there is the expectation that my so-called uh, gift will somehow bring something back to me. And then there's that little narcissistic wound uh, that often touches something that's much deeper so we take on this practice and we begin to see where we hold back where we're afraid and how many of us uh, meet fear uh, when we think about giving anything Uh, the fear that I won't have enough if I'm not real careful I'll give it all away and what happens uh, if I need some of this whatever this is it doesn't matter and we also have experienced the flip side of that giving without wisdom some of us have professions where the expectation is to literally give until it hurts and then keep giving and my wife works in a in a public school system where she's a guidance counselor and the expectation for teachers, uh, for guidance counselors, it's extremely destructive. One of the first things her boss said to her, uh, the principal, uh, on her orientation was, you know, you have flexible hours. It's okay for you to come and go. Just make sure that everything's done. It's never all done. I mean, systems keep generating more stuff to do, And so again, there's the hook embedded in the gift. And how, how difficult it can be to exercise wisdom to know when to hold back a bit. The late night sitting is a, you know, is a wonderful opportunity to explore this. You know, we've sat all day together. What happens if I stay up for that extra half hour and then it's so hard for me to get up in the morning? You know, will I be sleeping tomorrow morning? Will I not have enough energy to then sit? And how do we assess that? You know, how, do we, how do we acknowledge the difference between is this wisdom or is it fear of not having enough to bring to the table sometime in the future and that piece of unknown scaring us. So again, when we take on this practice of giving, it, we take it on in the service of learning more about ourselves, if we take it on in that spirit, it can be, it can be uh, deeply Uh, rich. What's that have to do with us being here? I've just alluded to it a bit uh, around the late night sitting. How do we give ourselves to our practice? Where do we hold back? The instructions for example are very simple. Some might say excruciatingly simple, boringly simple, repetitively simple, enough with the simple already, let's move on to the real thing. How do we give ourselves to this simple practice in this moment? Can we expect that if we don't invest ourselves in giving ourselves to this moment, that somehow in the unpredictable, unknowable future, we'll be able to do it then? And there's a a, a, a sort of uh, adage, piece of wisdom, whatever, in athletics that you play the way you practice. and so how do we practice here with something as simple as breathing in and breathing out and giving ourselves deeply and fully to that and noticing what comes up. Where do we hold back? Where do we slide off? How do we jump into the future? This is not enough. So can we give ourselves away to something as simple as this? Do we give ourselves to our walking practice? How do we give ourselves to our eating? Giving is about giving the self away. How do we pour ourselves out and into life as it's expressing itself, as it's meeting us, as it does on its own terms. So we look and we see where we hold back. We see how we let go into. And we use this practice to give ourselves fully. The word devotion is not uh, off the mark here. Now for many of us, to be devoted has a kind of context from our own religious backgrounds that means get stupid. right? Check your common sense at the door, do what I say, Forget about what I do. I mean, if you're devoted, right? This kind of devotion that I'm talking about is not about getting stupid. It's about getting acutely and clearly wise. If we don't pour ourselves into whatever our practice is, How are we going to know if it's truly the right way for us? And right now, it's lots of breath awareness practice. Does that fit for everybody? Yeah, about like a size 8 shoe fits for everybody in this room. Sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes absolutely perfectly. But if you don't put the shoe on and walk around in it a bit, it's not possible to know. So again, we come to this practice of seeing where we hold ourselves back. Now, this quality of giving will change how we live. It changes the quality. When the alarm clock goes off in the morning, do I step into the day? And you know, there's a there's a wonderful story from. Uh, I'm, I'm not good on my Bible. Uh, I think it was Solomon as a little boy uh, was asleep in his room, Uh, of course no night lights, Uh, pitch black and he hears the voice of God calling him. And he steps out of his bed, puts his foot on the cold tile floor, steps into the darkness and says, Here I am. That's an act of Donna. And we have opportunities throughout the day from the time the alarm goes off until we drop off into sleep. To experiment with enriching our lives by pouring ourselves into our lives as we find them. And, of course, how can this not be about the practice of meeting ourselves? You know, one of the uh, wonderful, awful things about retreat practice like this is that we uh, knowingly... I mean, we've all, been, we've all done this a little bit, right? I mean, we have some idea of what we've signed up for. We knowingly cut off all of our escapes. And remember, we chose to do this. And so what are we left with? We're left with meeting ourselves. With really no place to hide. Well, that's not true. I mean, my mind is like yours. There are always places to hide. Uh, And it's marvelously creative in that way. But at least we, we push it a little bit in terms of its creativity. It's not quite so easy to make a dash to the refrigerator. or flip on the TV or hop on the bicycle and go for a ride or out for a jog because I'm feeling lonely or frightened or depleted or angry. So how can we not, given the conditions, meet ourselves in the same way when we're practicing giving? Now this kind of of giving, this kind of activity that we call giving, runs uh, really counter. It, it's a it's a kind of swimming upstream, if you will, against our conditioning of uh, grasping, of wanting to keep, you know, something close and tight. I mean, did you ever try and give away something with a tight fist? I mean, it, this thing has limited utility, right? This, on the other hand, I mean, it's flexible, it's soft, it opens. And so this practice swims against the current of the conditioning that wants to withhold. And we begin to challenge that. And by challenging it, by bringing attention to it, these sort of icy blockages, if you will, the way it constricts, we see the stinginess of the comparing mind. This sitting is not as good as that sitting. This yoga is not as good as the yoga I do at home. This yoga is so much better than what I do at home. You know I think I'll follow woods back to New Mexico. This is so great. You know my teacher in Cambridge. Pfft. And of course, there's no end to that, is there? You know It's amazing that something that's so tight and so stingy can seem so bottomless. It's not. And as we begin to hold ourselves against this current, this sort of conditioning, these habits that have been ingrained in us by thousands and thousands of repetitions, the light of attention, the light of awareness, begins to melt these icy blockages. you ever looked at a, a a frozen lake? You know, as springtime comes and it begins to thaw, the water begins to pool on top of the ice, and the ice begins to become a little more translucent, then it gets kind of holy. You know, pockets develop. And maybe you haven't been back to that lake, you know, in a few days and then you go visit it again and there's all liquid. Alive, life-supporting, vibrant. Those icy blockages have melted away. When we are those icy blockages, it can feel pretty awful and pretty hopeless. But as we keep coming back with this warm, caring attention, we can experience life begin to move in us in a very different way. That's the practice of dana that opens up into generosity. A couple of words on uh, gratefulness. Because there's a kind of uh, circular dynamic of which giving is a part. What happens when we're on the receiving end of a gift? The gift of someone's attention, the gift of someone's compassion, consideration. Uh, the gift of uh, the first crocus in springtime. Gratefulness naturally appears. Gratefulness uh, and there's there's a wonderful little book by uh, a man named David David Steindl-Rast. Maybe you just uh, need the title only. It's called Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer. In some ways, as generosity is a foundation of spiritual life, gratefulness is a foundation of spiritual life. It's the spontaneous acknowledgement of something that's freely given when we come across the first crocus there's no strings attached or walking out along the, the road and out of nowhere you're completely overcome with the smell of honeysuckle. Gary Snyder, who's my favorite poet, has a, has a very, very short little poem that uh, ends with the words, I bow in roadside gravel. The natural, spontaneous gratitude. And again, this is something that shows up at least in potential throughout the day for us. You know, part of us may grumble when the alarm goes off. On the other hand you may have noticed that we wake up on an in-breath and that's pretty good news. Uh, A kind of expansiveness. See if there's some gratefulness there. Notice what happens when we uh, at the end of a sitting that's been particularly difficult, and the sound of the bell. Sure, there's some just plain relief. But notice if there's not some gratefulness. When we show up for food, and there it is, I mean, we show up, and so does the food. And there's a representative of the kitchen standing there to ring the bells. Given lovingly and openly and received with gratitude. Right now, I'm making the best presentation that I can of my understanding. And experience with tremendous gratitude the gift of your attention and listening. It's this wet, generative, cycling back and forth, giving and receiving, that's happening continuously throughout the day. It's captured in the simple in and out breath. So, lots of opportunities to practice. Dharma gates are everywhere, inviting us uh, to wake to them. As that uh, old Buddha, uh, Benjamin Franklin said, the truth patiently awaits us. So let's sit for just a minute.